industry picks up domains that are mature, that have short-term outcome, short-term impact. Academia has the option, but also, I think, the duty to think long-term. Welcome to Unboxing AI, the podcast about the future of computer vision, where industry experts share their insights about bringing computer vision capabilities into production. I'm Gil Elbaz, Datagen co-founder and CTO. Yala, let's get started. So, welcome, Lihi. So, it's exciting to have you here. We have here with us today Lihi Tselnik Manol, an associate professor in the Faculty of Electrical Engineering at the Technion and a, the general manager of Alibaba, Damo Israel Lab. Professor Lee Tselnik Manol holds a PhD and MSc with honors in computer science from the Weizmann Institute of Science and a BSc in mechanical engineering from the Technion. Her main area of expertise is computer vision. Professor Tselnik Manol has done extensive community contribution, serving as the general chair of CVPR 2021 program chair of CVPR 2016, associate editor at TPAMI, served multiple times as the area chair at CVPR, ECCV, and was on the award committee of ACCV 18, CVPR 19. Looking forward, she will serve as the general chair of ECCV 2022, happening in Israel, and as the program chair of ICCV 25 in China. Wow. I didn't know that they planned so far ahead. Well, yeah, now it's like six-year planning. Amazing. Okay, that's exciting. I'd love to maybe know a little bit more about what it actually entails being the chair of these programs. So it really depends what, what chair. If you're a program chair, then you're responsible for the entire reviewing process, paper acceptance, and uh, the program. So it's more academic. And being a general chair is more dealing with the operation. So you need to make sure that there is a venue and that people can attend and there are hotels. So I think general chair is considered kind of uh, distinguished, but it's administrative work. So you're the person that makes it happen. There's actually been a lot of feedback on the actual review process in the past few years uh, with the enormous storm of people joining the field and so many people trying to get accepted into these conferences as both a way into the industry and as a way to make an impact. But we see a lot of smaller iteration or increments on existing work. How do you think about that regarding like the way that the review process is done today? Is there anything that's going to be changing in the near future? So I think the computer vision and, and also machine learning, those fields have attracted a lot of attention from industry. And we're seeing uh, many challenges. In my view, this is because the industry is not playing in the academic game. So the rules of the game have been set up for academia and they've been working very well in many fields for many years. And all of a sudden there are new players and those new players have different goals, different agenda and different numbers. Things don't add up. And also the field has grown exponentially very, very fast. So now the, the, the process, it doesn't work as well as it used to be, at least in my eyes. And the level of professionalism of the review process is different. I don't want to criticize it too much. It's hard, but it's, it's hard to find enough people that have the experience and the years of knowledge to do the review process. So when I was uh, doing my PhD, PhD students did not do reviews. I remember when I was in, invited for the first time to do a review, it was like an honor. So I felt, wow, what an achievement. I got to do a review for a conference paper. And today, if you had one paper, you get to be a reviewer. Exactly. I did an oral presentation in CVPR 17 
And then CVPR 18, they wanted me to review papers. Exactly. And I actually accepted initially. And then when I saw the papers, I felt that I wasn't actually, I didn't have the enough of the background in order to do a thorough review in a reasonable amount of time. And so I actually declined to do the review itself. So this is very interesting because I've been in the field for many years and I still feel often that I don't have the required background to do the review properly. And the area is just so big and so vast and so many things, it's very difficult to keep up. So we are really in a problem that is not just yours. As a reviewer, it's everybody's problem. And I do expect to see changes. But what changes, time will tell. So there, there are other areas where you look at, I don't know if similar, but somewhat similar events have happened. And those areas just shifted to industry and the industry lost its interest in the academic game. And then the numbers, it's a number game. There's just not enough people to do the review properly, et cetera. So industry went into the academia and then took this area and got bored of playing the academic game and moved on. And then the problem was actually resolved by separation or the academia focusing on forward-looking directions and industry focusing on the more near future. And this is how the problem was resolved. It was not a change in the review process, but rather the scale was changed back. Yeah, and a change in focus, which is interesting. The other big feedback that I hear a lot is that the industry players have substantial resources and teams and ML ops teams, you know, and data ops teams and all of that, that really gives them a very unfair advantage against the new master's student that's working with a professor on an interesting problem, but that might not be as mainstream or might not get as state-of-the-art results. So, well, you're getting into the philosophical point of view, and, and I have my own point of view about the roles of academia and industry. And I, I don't see this as a problem, what you're mentioning. It, indeed, it is true. So in industry, you have resources that you might not have in academia, but also in academia, you have resources that you don't have in industry. For example, time, time to think. There's actually even a movement called slow thinking. And some of my friends are members of these organizations. Please allow us to think slowly. Moving a little bit beyond philosophy. So the way I see it, and I've worked in industry and academia, I just think academia and industry have different roles. Industry picks up domains that are mature, that have short-term and short-term outcome, short-term impact. So it doesn't necessarily have to be two months. It could be one year. It could be three years. Rarely you will see in, in industry also things that are longer term. Some really rich companies can invest in that in, in really, really long term. But most of the industry work, it adopts the short term. Academia has the option, but also, I think, the duty. Yeah, the responsibility. To think long term. So deep learning that we're all enjoying grew in academia. Quantum grew in academia. And there are many other domains that they grew in academia. And then it's, it's great that they shift on. And then what I hope to see is that academia will find what it should focus on in those areas. So either stop working on, on machine learning, if everybody thinks it's solved. I don't think it is solved. Or find those domains that academia should focus on, those problems that need to be thought of, the new things, the next thing that will work in 10 years. Yeah, I agree in many senses. I I think that the one distinction is it's great to have you in the room. You know, you have experience in both worlds and substantial experience in both worlds. I agree with you that in uh, academia, you have substantial time and you can think about these things. But 
with the current pace of progress, which is exponential at this point, at least in the field of deep learning, what I see is that you actually don't have time, <laughs> even if you're in the academia, because if you're working on something and then there's a group working on something similar, they can actually publish before you reach. Like... Maybe you shouldn't be working on that. I think the challenge comes. So for me as a professor, I can think in 10 or 15 years and I'm not rushed and I'm not concerned about anyone publishing before me. That's not part of my worries. Where does it become part of my worry? I have students and I need to teach. So my other role in academia is not just long-term research, it is also teaching. And students do come in and they want to do their bachelor's, master's, and PhD. They want to become experts in a domain and they want to become experts now. And they want to control, learn, and digest and be ready for the industry life. And that is more immediate. And they want to have publications now and they want to have impact now. And this is where you need to kind of play the game. The fact that we are now kind of competing or playing in the same field game, this is where it becomes challenging. So I think there was just uh, recently, there was uh, some paper that published statistics of the publication rates from industry versus academia in, uh, I think it was machine learning and not computer vision, but I'm not completely sure. And you see indeed that industry is rising in the percentage, but you still see a fair amount of papers coming out from academia. You see this strong uh, universities still doing very well, still publishing papers, at the top venues, being accepted for oral presentations, etc. Probably a little bit more difficult for the weaker places. But the stronger places are still on the map and are succeeding to do that. And you succeed to find those points where you do have your leverage. Okay, you have a startup. There are those dreams or the things that you want to do. And there's the reality of what you can do with your resources and your capabilities. And you make a choice. Mm -hmm. So the same is true for a master or PhD student. You need to choose what you can do. So I definitely agree that it's all about having a finite set of resources and trying to direct those resources in a way. I also, I don't want to put aside the positive things that we see with industry being so involved in these kind of forward-looking problems, even if they're three years forward. Today, three years is a long time, much longer than what it was maybe 20 years ago. And so, you know, you can see that DeepMind with AlphaFold is now making not only headlines, but real progress in real scientific domains that are beyond machine learning. It's amazing. For me, as someone who's started working in this field in the early 2000s, this is super exciting. It's so much fun. You know, I, I just talked to my son yesterday and I told him, I wish for you that the area you'll go for will explode like what has happened to me. It is just amazing. It is amazing. I mean, on that note, let's say in another 10 years, right? Do you have any industry in mind that you think has the potential to grow like computer vision grew? Everything that has to do with machine learning, I think, will continue. But what I think might happen is that we will stop calling it machine learning. Machine learning will transform each and every field. So we'll see a revolution or, or a, a huge change in healthcare. You'll see a huge change in chemistry. You will see a huge change in manufacturing. You'll see huge changes everywhere. And I really hope that you will see other, like I think one of the spotlights right now, this is not me, everybody sees it, uh, quantum computing is getting mm -hmm. a lot of question marks and attention. And you see the big corporates all have quantum labs. This is often an indication that many people believe this would be the next boom. Who knows? So we'll see. So I think we both agree that AI is the future. Maybe to take you back into the past a bit, I'd love to ask, a little bit about how the academic scene looked when you started out, who you guys were working with, 
And today we think of it as one thing, but I want to also provide a little bit of perspective to our listeners. It's a good question. I, I like this question because maybe because of ethical uh, reasons, people are very concerned about AI consuming their lives. And I don't know, I, I wouldn't call it AI. I started calling it AI because everybody else does. And then people understand what I'm talking about. For me, this is just an algorithm. Deep learning, okay. Transformers, okay. It's just algorithms. It's math. Yeah, it's math. Exactly. So if you go back, so there were people thinking about perception, specifically about computer vision. People are thinking about perception, human perception, machine perception uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, really before I was in the field. So I can start talking more about, let's say, around the year 2000. Let's start approximately over there. The computer vision community was small. A few hundred people would attend the main conferences, like 300, 400. I think ICCV 99 in Corfu. I would say four or 500 people. I'm not sure I didn't check. It was very, very much a community. You felt like you knew everybody, very academic. There were already companies doing research at Microsoft Research was there, very academic, very university-oriented. And the focus in computer vision was mostly on geometry. Mm -hmm. So people were trying to solve geometry. By the way, everybody knew that the holy grail is recognition. So if you look at the seminal papers, as I said, from the 70s or 80s, uh, Biderman and Shimon Ullman uh, from Israel, you'll see them talking about recognition and thinking about it. But the actual publications, most of them were about geometry and people thought they need to solve geometry and also were able to solve geometry. So it's a mix, again, of what you want to do and what you can do and the resources you have. People didn't have digital images. <laughs> so you had, can you imagine working on computer vision without images to test on? That's challenging. That's challenging, right? So, so in early 2000, we already had the images, right? But for example, videos, if you wanted to have videos on your computer, the video cameras were analog and you had to use like a frame grabber, which was expensive, and you had to know how to download the videos into your computer and opening a video file. I spent personally a couple of months on figuring out how to read a video file. Wow. So I had to code it in Linux and... Uh, using FFmpeg and, and tools. and So even the technical aspects were difficult at that time. But geometry was the name of the game. I think you, you can look at the people like Richard Hartley and Andrew Zisserman that have, wrote books and uh, had a lot of influence were working on that. And then very quickly, around year 2003, first successes in recognition started to appear. Can I maybe ask to clarify a little bit about what you mean by geometry versus recognition? Yes, so geometry was mostly about aligning images, figuring out where the camera is positioned, 3D reconstruction. If I see an object from two different viewpoints, was it possible to solve it? And it also had utilization in industry, like panoramas. People were very happy to have panoramas on their cameras, and 3D reconstruction people thought would be very, very useful. Back then, they thought it is essential for recognition. But even for recognition, if you look at David Lowe's work, so David Lowe, wrote one of the most seminal papers of computer vision, maybe even computer science of all times, was about SIFT features, an old school computer vision paper, which is interesting when you ask me about the pace. So the ICCV paper, which is the, the conference paper, was published in 1999. The journal paper, back then people really cared about journals, came out in 2004. So five years between the conference paper and the journal publication, Wow. So the processes to get a journal paper accepted were a little bit long. <laughs> five, five years is extreme, but 
it would take at least a year or a year and a half to get your paper through a publication process wow. in, in a journal like, like PAMI or IJC. But if you look at David Lowe's work before and after SIP, so he was thinking about recognition and then he said, okay, what can I do? I can find uh, features. If I define them well enough, I will succeed to align the images and then I will be able to align all the images. And through that, I will recognize that it is the same object because it has the same features and the features align. How can I recognize a face? I recognize features that are eyes, nose, and mouth. And then if I align all the face images, I'm like, okay, these are all faces. So this was this type of thinking of using geometrical alignment and geometrical computation for eventually recognition is the goal. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, just it, it throws me back to the courses that I did on classic computer vision in the Technion. Yeah, I think there's a lot to learn from that. And actually, now you see, I see a lot of going back to classical computer vision, right? We reinvent the wheel. So you see methods like uh, transformers that come out and it is much more correlated with old school computer vision. So correlation between image patches is a topic that the computer vision community has dealt with for a long time, somewhere between 2000 to 2010, yeah, that decade, a lot of works on non-local means and patch-based methods, example-based methods. And now transformers are leveraging that knowledge yeah, so you see it as looking to the past, grabbing some useful ideas, concepts, and then bringing them to life with today's deep learning capabilities. Yes, yes exactly. And was there any hype back then? Was it a lucrative kind of field? Was it crazy on the other hand? What did they think about the field? Lucrative, no. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. A very applied field. So we were working in an applied field, but the success in the real world was very limited. So this puts you in a question mark. Why are you working on this field? And several times when I was pursuing my career, I got advice, switch fields. That's <laughs> not the right field. You need to change to computational biology. Biology is the future. I actually had some very wise people talk to me when I went out on my postdoc and tried to convince me to switch to computational biology. Wow. We're all happy that you didn't switch. <laughs> <laughs> And was there really any focus on theory back then, or was it mainly engineering-focused, like solving problems? There was always the mix, and today it's also true. Even if I look at my own papers, we're doing a lot of work on architect research. So I have one paper which is very, very theoretical, and it tries to look at the bounds of how over-parameterized networks need to be in order to converge in the, in the training. At the other extreme, I have very practical papers. The key ideas are just, this is a method that works very, very fast and very, very efficiently use it. So I have the full spectrum because I, I like I like to have the full spectrum. And you see, I think it's a reflection of what you see in this field. There was always everything there, a good mix. And uh, I think I, I would cite uh, Vladlen Colton that he gave an excellent tutorial a few years back at CVPR about what is research and uh, what we should think about when we think about research. And he said it's a collaborative effort. So there are like many, many pieces, many small boats, and the boats should point in the same direction. And then the big one will win the championship. And you don't have to win the championship yourself, but uh, you make a little impact and you go in that direction. Then together it flows. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah, it's been a real challenge to add theory into this industry. At least from what I've seen, there's always been an attempt to try to connect the engineering efforts with the theory. And I'm definitely going to read up on your paper afterwards. But I think that in practice, we're pretty far from understanding some very basic things, right, in a theoretical level, like how much data do I need? Where is my network weak? 
So first of all, the good news is if you go back between 2012 and 2014, the deep learning revolution kind of started to boom. There were the first results in 2012 and people started talking about it. And there were many skeptical people, many skeptical people that said, why does it work? We don't believe in this approach. It has no substantiation and we have no idea why it works, but it works amazing. It works too good not to explore. And there was really no understanding of, of, of anything. Now we have a lot of understanding. And how do you know that we have a lot of understanding? You see so many companies have working products. This means that the engineers there, even if they can't express it easily yet, they know what they're doing. They know which architectures are choosing. They know the learning rate. They know how to train it. They have this know-how. They know something. And it's reproducible and it repeats in many different places. So we do know a lot. Now, going to theory, can you prove how much data you need? I can't prove it. But if you ask any one of my engineers, how many images do you need to solve a certain problem in computer vision? They will give you a ballpark number. It's a very, very interesting and also counterintuitive kind of concept. And I agree with you, like my engineers as well, right? They can say, oh, I need, you can do this with like 10,000 images, get a decent result. Or on different problems, we need a lot of data. We need half a million, a million images just to, to make this work. You're a mechanical engineer like me, right? Yeah. So I don't know if you ever heard this, but when I was a student, I remember in the field today, this was one of the influential sentences I heard when I was in my Etatechnion doing uh, my studies for the bachelor degree. And this was in the course on um, fluid dynamics. Fluid dynamics, yeah. So we were learning about the Navier-Stokes equations and they told us we don't know how to solve them and we can't really compute the flow. And we were all kind of perplexed. And then the lecturer told us, look, don't worry. Eventually, you will go out there and the blue-collar worker, he will tell you, look, you need 10-inch hose. It's going to work. <laughs> and trust him, he knows. You need a 10-inch hose. So this gap between the theory or the research and the practice has always been there. And mechanical engineers have always been the ones that have not waited for the physicists and the mathematicians to prove what needs to be done. They just acted upon it and they just built systems mm -hmm. and they built trains and they built airplanes and they did not fully understand the physics. They did not fully understand the aerodynamics. They said, okay, this works. And they just, they were doing experiments, rough estimations. So I feel very comfortable coming from that perspective. I feel very comfortable with building systems that work without fully understanding them. And for computer scientists, I, I see this is often difficult. My son is a physicist. And he tried to take a class in deep learning and he hated it. So <laughs> there's no logic. The things don't add up. And I said, okay, yeah, there are no proofs, but it works. Yeah, there is logic. There's just no solid proofs. It's interesting. It's like the information is hidden in the deep features in our brains in a way. And we act upon it, even though we can't actually formalize it, at least today. True. But there's more and more that is coming out. If you look... It is progressing tremendously and people are succeeding. And you see there, a paper comes out, for example, a new idea like Transformers. Very, very quickly, people get it, they understand, and they do better. They improve it very quickly. How can they improve so quickly? This is because they already have this, this knowledge on what works. So they have an understanding. 
Yeah, I think that it's both that they have an understanding and, and there are also like various vectors to improve it, right? For instance, with transformers, you want to move from like a quadratic um, time to, to more of a linear kind of time scale and then, or computational complexity. And then, you know, there are various ways to do it. And, and then you see people trying to make preformers and reformers and all of these other formers. And it actually does work and it does make progress. I do think that there is kind of a, a surprise moment many times, though, in, in deep learning, which is fun. But, but yeah, it goes back to the same point, I think. Maybe if we can dive into the main topic for today. I think that this is something that's not talked about enough, but is probably one of the more important subjects in our field. The challenges hiring and finding people and making people happy. We can connect this to the academia in a way. Regarding your students, how did you find you know, the right student to join you? Is there like a specific set of characteristics that you always look for? So I think in academia, okay, the, the way I chose people or in academia was a little bit different from what I do in industry, or maybe a lot different. It was very important for me to choose people that I just enjoy working with. It is also important in industry, but there this was, the priority on that was very high. Mm-hmm. I wanted to enjoy, I wanted to have fun. I wanted to, because we, we do a lot of one-on-ones and a lot of brainstorming and a lot of thinking. So there needs to be a personal fit between me and everyone in my close team. Usually when students would come in, I would tell them what my beliefs are, how I work, and then send them to my lab and tell them, go gossip, go ask questions, go ask others, how was it to work with me? And you choose if you want this is the package. Choose if you want to, to take this package. Those that said yes, we would launch a test project. Mm-hmm. And we just see if, if it flows well. So I think in academia, this was very, it is kind of simple. And the reason I, I didn't have like a high bar, actually most students, we would just hit it off and, and, and get going. Very few, it never happened. And the reason is that I saw my duty, two reasons. So one reason is that most people I enjoy working with, apparently, and uh, just most of the students that came in through my door probably saw already what I was working on before. They wanted to work on the same things and it kind of clicked and was fun. And the second reason is that I saw my duty to teach people. So this is my duty to teach people. Whoever comes in, if they have shortcomings that they don't have enough background in math or enough background in programming or enough confidence, it is my duty to teach them. So I take them if they want to and they believe in it, I take them. So this was my academic perspective. That's a great approach, I think. And I know that there are some uh, professors that have a very different approach that are very, very tough to talk to and purposely create a lot of walls that you need to pass. And then they see if you want it enough, if you're hungry enough. I appreciate that. And I think that in many cases, measuring people by the grades that they get in their classes is not necessarily the best way to measure them and best way to filter them out. Okay, so I'll say one last thing that maybe we talk a little bit about industry. So when I started my career as a professor, I went to ask for advice. How should I choose my students? And people gave me different advice. So people said things like, look at what you said, like choose the ones that are best in math, the ones that are best in physics, all kinds of stereotype things. And then the advice I really liked a lot was choose someone that is very excellent in something unrelated to work. So it can be excellent in music or excellent in sports or excellent in whatever. Choose those people. They would fit you better. So maybe this is a good guideline. So how would we connect it to industry? Different people have different preferences, different goals. I truly, I honestly appreciate other professors have different uh, ways to choose because they have different goals than mine. I wanted 
to teach certain people. And this was my goal. And this is how I chose people that want to learn from me. Other people have different uh, objectives in their lives. And when I go to industry, again, I define the objectives. So I need to, to know what type of team I want to build, what are, of course, in terms of skill set, but also in terms of culture. And then these are my objectives. And then I select people according to those objectives. So it's not the same thing. So what are the main objectives in industry? Or maybe we can connect that to how you moved to Alibaba. And maybe we can talk about the objectives in, in industry. Okay, so maybe I'll say, I'll, I'll give a brief introduction to Alibaba, Israel, and who we are, and then maybe there will be some context. So I moved to Alibaba three years ago, late 2018. So the story of Alibaba in Israel is that I acquired a company called Visualid, and this was the seed for Alibaba Israel. The team of six people joined with the CTO, Itamar Friedman, joining, and he was the one who actually founded Alibaba Israel. And then I joined a few months after that, and we've been growing through recruiting and acquisition of Infinity AR. A big team joined Alibaba Israel through that. The CTO, Matan Potel, has also joined us, and there are still my people there in Alibaba. And then we started recruiting, and we have now people like uh, Asaf Noy, who leads our research team, and Adav Zamir, who leads uh, the algorithm team. And we've grown into an R&D center that develops product. So we are working on a product called Ali Yunpan, or Alibaba Cloud Drive, which is a hybrid version of like something between Google Drive and Google Photos, adapted to the Chinese market. So Ali Yunpan is the Alibaba's Drive product. And our team is uh, not doing it by itself. We're doing it in collaboration with two other teams. One is more the front end for the drive and one that is doing the storage on the back end. And we actually also do end-to-end for anything that is related to photos. So we have actually, we have all the way a, a broad spectrum of people from product manager, mobile developers, backend, frontend, infrastructure, and then algorithm people, data team, and researchers. I actually didn't realize the full scope that it's not only the research side of things, it's actually the full product being developed here. Research is just part of the team. We're doing research with more than two goals. So one goal is branding, which is great, but also knowledge. Actually, our research team outcomes go into the product eventually, but a bit longer term than the algorithm team that are working directly on the features. But we are really an R&D center developing features like uh, image search or creating automatic albums from your personal photos. And you can imagine there's more need to design the application. You need to define the product and you need to program it and do, the, again, the front end on the mobile. And the, there's also a web version, so also the front end on the web. And backend wrap algorithms into microservices and deploy them in Alibaba Cloud's multimedia platform, etc. So we do the full spectrum. And now if you ask me, how do you recruit? Then you need to, so it's about skills, but also you need to find people fitting for, for each of those roles in terms of what it takes. It seems like a big shift from the academia where you're very, very focused on algorithms to a much, much broader spectrum, more closely related to, let's say, a startup or some kind of org focusing on a product. How was the kind of how was the move for you? Was it what you expected or no. was it <laughs> how, how is it different? <laughs> In every possible way, it's completely <laughs> different. It's a different life. So uh, I think before you asked me uh, some sample questions, and one of them was, how is academia different from industry? And I want to say, what is similar? <laughs> like, come on. It, it's a different world. It's like asking me why the 
academic career is one way, industry career is another way, military career is another way. There are so many options for career. You can choose whatever you want. I'm lucky enough to have a chance to experience both. Actually, today, answering more seriously, people in academia and field like mine in computer vision or machine learning have a chance to enjoy both worlds. It is great that it is possible, and I really hope universities in Israel will enable this more and more as we see it also in other places in the world. It's actually been quite standard in some fields. So, for example, architecture, economy, law, people have always been with two feet, like one foot at the academia and one foot in the real world. Not real world, but uh, the uh, industry. industry. Yeah. Because academia is just as real. And now it's happening also for in, in engineering. And you can leverage both worlds. So mm-hmm. really one for the long term, for the research and to explore more than your thoughts and the other one to take it into practice and actually create products that work and people can hold in their hand and use. So speaking of people holding the product in their hand, how many people are, are using uh, this product? Is it, I'm assuming that there's a very, very wide reach if it's the Alibaba version of Google Cloud for our audience. Uh, you're right. So I can't give you specific numbers. Uh, these numbers are confidential, but you can imagine, you know, China is big, 1.5 billion people, but we've just launched. So the first version came out in, in March and we are really in the process of exploring what is the right product. Maybe I'll give you a little bit of, of background about specifically Drive products. So in the West, they're very common. Just looking at Google Drive, they have 2 billion users. And China, there are competing products, but the market is really not taken. The biggest one in the market has 70 million users. Oh, wow. So, so just a fraction is using Drive product, which tells you that uh, on one hand, there's potential. On the other hand, it tells you nobody figured out what is the right Drive product for the Chinese user. And the Chinese users are different from the American user or the European user. They have different preferences. Uh, For example, if you just open any app in China, it is the appearance. You will see it immediately. Very cluttered, very colorful. It's really the opposite of the Google search, which I remember the, the day it launched. It was just a white page with the search bar saying, I'm feeling lucky, and that's it. And in China, it, it's really the opposite. It's red and orange and blue and green and like a hundred mini apps inside your app. And you look at, and, and as a Westerner, you look at it and say, are they crazy? And no, they just have different preferences. And this is what they like and enjoy. It's so interesting to see how the cultural differences can be visualized in this way. There's also by the way, a very small an anecdote, which I, I like. I think like red and green have reverse meanings in East and West. If you look at the stock market, what marks that the stock went up and went down, it's reversed. Yes. So even the colors are different. So it's uh, it's the small things and uh, that get people hooked and want to use your, your products. Can you tell us a little bit about the teams themselves? A little bit about the structure, communication between the teams, how you go about scaling that? So I think there are, there are two aspects that could be interesting. So in building Alibaba Israel is very similar to building a startup within a huge organization. So our ocean is not... Uh, exactly the a blue ocean that you can uh, choose whatever you want. You need to choose your C. Your C is what makes sense for Alibaba and how you can leverage Alibaba. But apart from that, we've built something very new. So we are the first international R&D center of Alibaba, first foreigner site, we, we would say. So how do we work uh, with other teams was unclear. How do we do things, operational things were unclear. 
So we are very much like a startup trying to choose our direction and building a team for that. And our team today, as I said before, it expands from product. We have a product managers, we have mobile developers, a mobile team, we have a data team, we have engineering team that does the back and front end and MLOps. We have an algorithm team that are responsible for the features that go into the product. And we have a research team that is more long-term and uh, bringing the, making sure we're doing state-of-the-art technologies and they have a chance to contribute into the product uh, at a slower pace, but keep making sure that we are up to date and everything we do is really, really excellent and the best. So this is kind of our team structure, but what is interesting is to ask me, how do you scale up? And one of the things that we've done just recently is think about our development processes. And I think there's a lot of know-how now in the industry. People know that squads seem to work better for deployment and deliveries. So we have done this uh, recently. Can you uh, mention what squads are? So the traditional uh, organizational structure, if you go back to the 1990s, teams were organized by profession. People expertise experts in graphics. There was a graphics team and people who are expert in front-end. There was a front-end team and mobile developers a team for Android developer and, and a team for Apple uh, developers, etc. Teams were organized by their expertise. And then if you want, for example, to create a product or a feature in a product that requires a mobile developer and a backend developer and an algorithm and a product manager, the multiple teams will have to kind of communicate and align their plans. And then at some point, I think the first that made the buzz about it is Spotify. People call it the Spotify model. They started talking about squads. These are like teams that have people with multiple different expertise, diverse expertise, and they're like an independent unit that can deliver the feature or the product. So you will have a squad, could have one person from each of those teams. It depends. For example, so we have one squad that it is more about core technologies and, for example, does not have a mobile developer because there's no need. They just deploy to cloud. And maybe even a squad could have only algorithm experts because this is all you need for that task. So squads could be formed for a certain task and they could die. You could disassemble them when the task is complete or if the task continues, they could remain as a squad. And then it makes it easier to manage and tie all the loose ends together in order to deploy in a timely manner. Because everybody's aligned, their OKRs are aligned, and they work together for the same goal. Yeah, I can tell you a little bit from our perspective. We don't officially call it squads, but we have a very similar method of taking on specific projects and getting multidisciplinary people from a bunch of different teams to come together. We have a temporary kind of lead for this project. We call it the project lead. And then he or she manages the entire scope of that project, all of the people from all of the teams. And so we still have teams that are divided into the professions that they have. And they're constantly learning, constantly challenging each other. So we do feel it is important to have that kind of guidance. And we have very senior people on each team. It could be 3D artists in our case, or algorithm developers, or backend developers. But in addition, there's a lot of these temporary multidisciplinary teams that are formed for a specific project. And they're usually like it's known that they're temporary. They usually don't keep them around for too long. So I think you bring up a very good point. So I call them squads. You call them project teams. The name is not really important. But what is important is that or what is interesting is I know I talk to many different companies and you see that every company 
actually has different needs and different preferences, and th there's no one way to do it. So in my case, we chose similar to you. We have the organic teams are based on profession because in, indeed they need to they know how and learn from each other and, and uh, learn technologies and make sure they're up to date, et cetera, et cetera. So knowledge needs to be transformed and problems need to be solved together. But then we also form those squads that are, it could be temporary, it could be long-term. And other, other companies might have just squads as their organizational structure, like with the reporting lines and managers. The multidisciplinary terms will be the team. It might make more sense for them. Some companies will have a mix. So it really depends on what you're doing and what your needs are in terms of development and also who your people are. So people need to be ready for that. It needs to fit them. You need someone who wants to lead this project. Definitely. Someone needs to be willing to do that. And people need to want to work in that format. So it's about maybe the mindset of the team. Definitely. We sometimes also see that non-trivial people are, are needed and can actually accelerate projects substantially. We recently added an operations person to a very technical project, but that required some external resources outside of Datagen as well. We saw a substantial speed up in the entire project, and she took on not only the external communication, but then also managed a lot of internal things that we saw as bottlenecks. And suddenly we got like a very nice boost in performance, something that uh, was surprising and, and very positive recently. That's amazing. I think it's beautiful. The main learning I have is that there's no one solution fits all. I really love your story because personally, I strongly believe in diversity. And I think when you bring in someone from, which is very different and you change things and all of a sudden you have new ideas and things start to, to shift and say, oh, wow, I didn't think of that. That's just cool. Yeah. She came with a mindset that was very different to our standard engineering-focused mindset, which is very refreshing and helped a lot. Was she challenged at the beginning? Honestly, she came in uh, running. She was like ready to go. She wasn't, I think, surprised at all or had a tough time. That's great. Often I see that those people that come with a different background or perspective, for example, let's say you, you recruit a product manager that has never worked with AI. The questions they would bring, the ways of work they would want to instill the team might say, oh, that, that can't work and dismiss what they say. Challenge this person who comes out with this different mindset. And then it takes time to see that actually there's something to it and maybe we can learn from someone that came from a different perspective. So often I found people, they're used to something, they want to keep that way and changing how they think and how they work. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it takes time, but and it also takes good communication. Even with very different perspectives or new concepts, ideas, a lot of times what makes or breaks the collaborations are the single individuals that communicate in a good way or not. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, there is a citation from Steve Jobs. I don't remember the accurate wording, but it is something like this. that It's not about the technology. It's about the people. Communication is very challenging because uh, often people think it really has taken place and Maybe it did not. <laughs> so at the end of the day, I don't think the main barriers for the success of our products and technologies are the technologies and the product that are the people that do it. I agree. And especially when scaling up, right? Like when moving from a small organization to a large organization, where we're right now, and I'm sure that you are as well, hiring a lot of people. We have a ton of open roles. This isn't supposed to be a... <laughs> 
an advertisement, but it is. Uh, <laughs> but in practice, that's one of the main things that we're looking for, even in the most technical roles and also in the, obviously, in the operations roles. Having good communication is super important on our side. What I find is often difficult for companies in scaling up is maintaining your organizational culture. Mm-hmm. So you know what culture you want to instill, and you've been doing that. You recruited people according to that. But now you're maybe you're as the as the startup founder, you're no longer doing the recruiting of everybody. Actually, you will find people that tell you that they interview each and every person that joins their team. Some people continue to do that, but most don't. And you start trusting your, your team leaders to do the interviews. And often companies suffer from pain points at that point of scaling up because those people that recruit may not fully be aligned with you on what to look for. And all of a sudden you see a different culture that you were not hoping for and people that don't fit your, the culture you want to instill. And then you need to change. And um, that's hard. That's hard. Yeah, I agree. We're not yet at that stage. So we're around 50 people now. We're not yet at the stage where we we don't have the capacity for either me or Ophir, uh, my co-founder, to interview. But eventually, I definitely see that it will happen. And then hopefully we can still instill some kind of culture. But it's a lot about the top of the funnel and, and the people that actually come in. Of course, it is possible. I really hope that you succeed in, the, in doing that. As long as you're thinking about it already, how do you scale up with your team and maintain the team that you want? Then you're already, you've done part of the way, right? Because you're thinking about it, so you act upon it. A lot of our involvement today as founders is around HR and around, mm-hmm. around people. Sometimes also algorithms, which is the fun part. And just out of curiosity, maybe to take us back to the areas around methodologies of working, are there any unique methodologies that you've found from either Chinese culture or Alibaba culture or internal Alibaba things? Or are we already in like a very global situation where Spotify is, let's say, came up with something interesting and then it has kind of a global effect? So first of all, I'll say about Spotify. They came up with something and then you can find blog posts saying that Spotify doesn't use the Spotify model. <laughs> so I don't know uh, if we, how much credit we should give them, but... I do see changes and I see different teams were operating in different ways, also in Alibaba, but also globally. Being part of Alibaba is, I think, maybe similar to other corporates in the sense that you have this framework. So, for example, you talk about a team and how do you make sure people are working well and they're happy and they're motivated and how do you get the right team culture that you enjoy working there, right? You're a founder, but you want to enjoy it, right? If it's not fun, then what's the point? And working for a big company, then those companies, they come with their own culture. They come with the values. I think this was actually one of the things that for me personally was very, very interesting and enjoyable. So Alibaba has six values. Work, really follow those values. Twice a year, we have the performance uh, process in Alibaba. You're even evaluated on how well you align with the values. So it's not just your outcomes. It's also the values are evaluated. Can you give us a sample of some of these? Sure. Well, the values are actually posted on the main web page of Alibaba Group. When you go to the first page, Alibaba talks about its culture. I strongly believe in the culture, maybe even stronger than, than Western companies. It's always there. And you always go back to the values when you're in doubt. So they're kind of like your compass. So it starts from customer first, employee second, shareholder third. 
which is very, very different. So Alibaba is famous for when they went to NASDAQ and IPO. The people that were there standing on the bench were not the founders. They were the first customers of Alibaba. Wow. Which is very, very interesting. from other companies. So customer first. And then trust makes things simple. So you're talking about the people, communication. You need to trust people. When communication doesn't work very well, you start having doubts and you're not sure. But if you trust people, they say, okay, he must be doing things right. Let's see what he's doing. Let's talk. Let's revisit it, et cetera, et cetera. I think one thing that is unique to Alibaba, for example, is that the third value, which is change, is the only constant. It's always changing. It's always rapid. Maybe this is something that is kind of special to the Chinese culture or specifically for Alibaba. The speed in which this organization starts projects and shuts them down is very high. So big corporates often move slowly, but no, Alibaba, in Alibaba's OKRs is to remain agile. So 250,000 people work for Alibaba and Alibaba wants to be an agile organization. Wow. Things change a lot. Even for us in Alibaba Israel, we worked on the multiple different projects. And now we are in a project working on this uh, Alibaba drive and we're pivoting the product continuously. Every three months, every quarter or six months, the product changes direction because we're in exploration mode and this exploration mode will remain for a while. So how do I recruit, how do I keep people happy? From point one, I recruit those people that will feel okay with those changes, that will enjoy them and will see them as opportunity for growth. So if you find those people and then they join your team, then they're happy with what's happening, then you have a win. This is how you close the cycle. And you have six values, but let's say change is one of the big ones, or having a dynamic environment that's constantly changing. And then you try to look for that in the interview process as well. Yes. Another value is that is about growth. So performance always is always improving. So I recruit people that really care a lot about their personal growth, that they're ambitious mm-hmm. and they want to grow things. In a corporate, that's not always there at the thing you would look for. Some corporates would look for people that are just happy doing their job and they want more stability. And that's not the type of people I'm looking for. I'm looking for people that want to grow and get a chance to do things they have not done before. Yeah, on our side, I can say that kind of in the startup environment, you know, we don't need to tell them that it's dynamic. We do look... Yeah, they know that. Yeah, we, we do look to see that they're willing to adapt to the startup culture. But but yeah, it's, it's a very, very dynamic environment. So it's not something we need to explicitly look for. And I think it's very interesting to see the contrast in Alibaba taking a similar idea and expanding it to a giant company. In addition, on our side, we look for ownership. So taking things end to end, we try to understand if they've done this in the past, if they believe in it, something that's very, very important. Communication, of course, is also super important on our side. And we we look for this as well. And yeah, I think that there are a lot of smart people everywhere, right? And so the differentiator on a team level is really the soft skills in many ways. That's an interesting point, because I'm sure that you look for people that believe in your vision and mission, right? Definitely. For sure. And the soft skills, this is a point that is very interesting. So people ask me, young people ask me, should we go to university? Should we study? Why go to the Technion and uh, get a bachelor's degree? or a master's degree, and I say, well, one thing is the knowledge that you accumulate, but I think it's a soft skill. I see big difference uh, in people, in people's soft skills that it has correlation to the studies they went through. Definitely. I think that both the military service has a lot to do with these communication or soft skills, and the same for university. 
it's like a life-changing experience and it's a substantial amount of time and effort that goes into it. I think the only way to, to get through the Technion sane is with friends and, and doing things together. You'd be surprised. You know, I thought that I thought that too, but there are actually statistics. Some people do get by, prefer to work on their own. Really? Yeah, they, they exist. <laughs> they're, they're, not, they're not that small a number. So different people go through it in different ways. But at least my perspective, let's say you're really one of those people that like to work alone, you prefer to work alone, and you can succeed doing your studies all by yourself. So let's say you have the full thing. You don't you actually don't need anyone. In your studies, you are forced to do some projects in pairs. You are forced to do some lab projects or you're not allowed to do it by yourself. And it forces you to go out of your comfort zone as someone who wants to do things on their own. It forces you to work with somebody else. And then if someone comes to me and they say, well, I've done all those projects. These are my two projects that, uh, that I did for graduation. And uh, I was forced to work with someone, but I didn't like it. So I did, uh, or they were weak or what, what, whatever reason they will have. And say, actually, I've done all the work by myself. And I was like, okay, maybe that's not someone that would work with me. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a hard sign for me. For maybe for for some roles, maybe it fits. But um, I think some people need to learn, as we said, communication. Need to learn to work with each other. If you don't know how to work with others, that's a minus. So it's awesome that you're super smart and capable of doing end to end everything. But if eventually at the end of the day, if you don't do it with others, then that's a minus. And studying gives you a chance to do that to work with others. Yeah, I agree. And. Maybe on the technical side of things, beyond the communication, I think that for us at least, one of the more interesting points or one of the points that we kind of focus on is to see that people are genuinely interested in, in what they're doing. And so it's not just about, you know, knowing, you know, the, the new architecture that just came out, right? It's, it's just seeing that they're, they're really passionate about what they've done in the past seeing that they're passionate about the field, that they read blog posts and they, they do things that enrich their, their understanding because it's interesting for them and not just because they need to. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So maybe to touch on um, one of the big questions of today is kind of around how do we motivate our people? So as, you know, as the job market's been even more intense and as we've had so many people kind of moving between places at a, an increasing speed, I think the average time is, is less than two years now for an engineer to be in, in a single work environment. How do you keep your team motivated? And we can focus on the computer vision team because yeah. you have many different teams, of course. Yeah. But actually, I think it's kind of the same for, for all. So I think you answered this question in what you're doing. If you recruit the right people that like the vision and mission, they believe in it, they're passionate about their profession, doesn't matter if they're a mobile engineer or an algorithm or a researcher. Uh, if they're passionate about what they're doing and they join a company that they love their its mission and vision and they fit for the culture, then you have everything in place. Now, different people have different preferences and it's all fine. Some people really put high weight on the income. Others put really high weight on being able to continuously progress in their career management. Other people just want to keep learning all the time. Other people appreciate, really want to work in a, maybe in a big company because they want to change every two years what they're doing. So in a big company, they have maybe some options. 
some people really have the dynamic passion for startups and they like to chase the dream and others prefer stability. So there are people that switch jobs every two years, but there are people that stay in the same job for 20 years. Probably you, you like using the term uh, product market fit, mm-hmm. right? So it's a product market fit. If your company is a good fit for, forgive me for treating people as product, <laughs> but the, the, that engineer is a product. And if you're a good fit for them, that higher, uh, more likely that they that they will stay longer time. Yeah, I can see the kind of the concept of product market fit going to engineer company fit. We can call it. Here we just have a we have a new uh, <laughs> ECF. Okay, so that's going to be famous now. But yeah, I definitely agree that once you know, once there is an ECF, I'm just kidding. Once there is a an engineer uh, company fit, it makes things much much, much simpler. And it's interesting because, like you said, everyone's very, very different. And of course, there are good people that have, you know, very different preferences. And so I think that one aspect comes to the filtering in the beginning of the process. Do you have like a process of identifying what's actually really important for these engineers or kind of understanding? It's a good, it's a good tip. (laughs) Of course, of course. I think that in our interview process, uh, we give a lot of emphasis to HR. So HR interviews each and every candidate. And also we have an interview process and we align between us. What are the things we want to check? So if someone focuses more on the professional aspects, someone else will focus on the HR aspects. Mm -hmm. We cover all the bases. Definitely. And I'd want to just finish off with two last questions. What are the kind of next big trends that you see in computer vision? Maybe even beyond the time frame of two, three years forward? So I don't know about the trend. Or milestones, for instance. I can say what I hope we will see. So I think that these are interesting times. And uh, just yesterday, I had a conversation with uh, Itamar Friedman. And uh, he told me, you know, I see all those companies that tell me that they're done with the algorithm development. There, there's no need for further improvement. It's just about the product now. And I said, wow, okay, interesting. So many technologies are mature enough. They work. So what's next? Now, there are all those things that don't really work. They're not, they don't work well enough. So what is the next thing beyond neural networks or today's format of neural networks? I think this, would, this is the interesting question. What is the, the next stages will take us one step further? We touched upon this uh, at the beginning of our conversation and said, okay, I call it AI because everybody calls it AI, but it's not AI. It's not artificial intelligence in any way. We're just doing deep learning. We have not even solved machine learning. So we just teach very, very specific things. So what is the next step? Can we improve on on really mimicking some of the human perception capabilities? Will that happen? I think this is an interesting question. And um, What's your perspective on uh, the question of consciousness? building a system that that we would consider at least conscious? I would say that this is very unclear to me what that would be like and uh, are we ready for it? So I think taking something much, much simpler, uh, for example, autonomous driving. So many years just to get through the the people factor. It's not about the technology, not just the technology. People accepting it, debating the legal issues, the regulatory issues all that and accepting it and saying, okay, it's okay to, to drive in such a car, let them drive. And this is simple. There, it doesn't touch upon 
what is in our heart. We really, we really are concerned about right the, the rise of the machines and uh, AI taking over the world and these things that are scary for us. Autonomous driving is is practical and technical and useful and would mm-hmm. get us rid of driving. So conscious machines, like any te- like like any technology, could be totally awesome, totally amazing, change our life for the better, but could also be very bad. I agree. I think I think it's a double-edged sword. It's it's an interesting concept. But between the lines, I'm gonna assume, and you can correct me, of course, that you think it's possible. Anything is possible, right? I think so. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't see it in the near future. Okay. If, if this is what you're asking, I don't see it in the near future. I don't see it in three years or ten years. I think it will take much longer. Interesting. Okay. And last question that we ask um, all of our guests, of course, is uh, for new people in the field that are joining now, either after their first degree, after their second degree, uh, maybe they're just exiting some kind of military service. What are your kind of recommendations or, or what are kind of your thoughts on how to start on the right foot and how to create kind of a, an initial career path? So I'm still a little bit old fashioned because of the data I've seen until today. And uh, it depends a little bit. I've been asked this question actually for many of, um, from, by many people, my, my kids, friends, and uh, I tell them, first you need to define what is the career path you're looking for. But if you want to go into an area like computer vision, that you really still need to accumulate a lot of knowledge. I would recommend going through the traditional path, studying, getting a strong bachelor degree, and then PhD, really if you want to be an expert, I would recommend that. So PhD gives you a chance to become a world expert in -hmm. something. It gives you a chance. Not everybody leverages this chance well. Some people go and do a PhD just kind of to have a check mark. I have a master's degree, I have a PhD. But it is a chance that you could leverage. And if some people do leverage it, and then you you see them go out there and do amazing things, like they start companies, technology-based, really advanced technologies, and they have this unique knowledge base that they take with them for life. And from my perspective, being uh, having a career for many years, I see myself using different aspects of the things that I've learned. So it used to be geometry, then it's statistics and probability and optimization and programming in different languages, and they change. It used to be C and C++. I, I, I coded in OCK. We don't know what OCK is, but uh, <laughs> I used to do that. And now it's, uh, and then MATLAB and Python. So this is just to give an example. It changes all the time. So how can you prepare yourself for a long career? And nowadays we're talking about long careers, right? You can work until you're 80. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about like 50, 60 years of work. How do you prepare yourself for that? Do you really think that doing a bunch of projects, even if they're amazing in the military, give you the right infrastructure? I would recommend building a very, very strong infrastructure in math, computer science, and physics. Build the infrastructure, have the tools, and then you can always learn and evolve and continue to to remain relevant. Very interesting. Yeah, I have less of a perspective of the PhD side of things, but from my experience in the academic studies, I can definitely agree that it gives you a very unique perspective. It gives you time to think, time to really learn a lot. And I definitely think that the time there is time well spent, especially in the beginning of a career, to build that infrastructure. What I do today as a startup CTO is is very, very much based on a lot of the knowledge that I gained through the academia. It's good that you mentioned being CTO. 
different people have different goals in their career. So if you want to go for the T, if you want to go for the tech, if you want to be a tech expert for many years and remain relevant for many years, then yes, build this infrastructure and maintain it throughout. Mm-hmm. So, and then you can, you can do that and enjoy it. It's fun. It's fun. It's definitely fun. Thank you very, very much, Lee. It was a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. I enjoyed it. This is Unboxing AI. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe. If you want to learn about computer vision and understand where the future of AI is going, stay tuned. We have some amazing guests coming on. It's going to blow your minds.